1: from P.S. Literary Agency. Hi everyone, welcome to a bumper jam-packed edition of our bonus episode in which we are taking all of your questions and giving you all of your comps. This is what we're going to aim to do going forward, one bonus episode a month in which we tackle all of these things without author interviews so that you can just catch up on all of that. So as we usually do, we're going to dive right in. Right, here's the first question. Carly, will you answer that for us?
2: Good morning. Hope you guys are doing a really good quick question. So when it comes to the querying portion of this whole writing and publishing journey, my question was, if you can't seem to find a book or books to put it as for your comps in the query, that falls in the same genre. So for example, I'm able to find one book in the same genre that sort of hits on one aspect of my book, but there's another one I'm trying to look for that isn't hitting it Or that is hitting it, but it's not in the same genre. So mine is young adults, whereas that comp that I need to hit that portion or my book is a middle grade. How does that work with including that in my comp? Are agents okay with that?
0: All right. This is a tricky one. Normally with comps, I'm usually just like whatever you feel like is right is great. You know, movies, TV, film, like, you know, anything like that. But for this one, the YA community is very particular sometimes about what the parameters of YA are. So therefore, I do feel like for this one, trying to get to YA comps is just setting yourself up for the most amount of success you know, look, at the end of the day, if you can't find anything else and you have to choose a middle grade comp, I would say, you know, it's X, Y, Z, but for YA, you know, just make it very clear that you understand that it is middle grade, but you are pitching this for YA. Do you know what I mean? Like we really, as I said, the YA community is particular. So trying to just make it very clear that you understand, you know, you understand the market, you understand the category, you understand your community, all of that. So really just trying to have two YA comps is best case scenario. But if not, as I said, there's always comping TV, comping podcasts, comping movies, right? I'm, I'm always open to and, and suggest that we're open to other media. But that's my advice just about
1: YA in particular. Wonderful, Carly. Thank you. Okay, here is our second question. And then Cece, will you answer that for us, please?
3: Hi, Bianca, Carly and Cece. Thank you so much for your podcast. My question is about the importance of your resume and querying. I have a master's degree in journalism from an elite university in the US and wrote for some household name media companies, but I haven't worked in almost a decade since having kids. The only published writing I've done lately is running my own travel website for the last four years and some brand marketing. I am currently working on my first fiction novel, a contemporary women's fiction set in the travel industry, and I'm wondering if my resume will be enough for querying since it is a related industry, or if I should try to publish a short story or otherwise build a resume in publishing before querying the novel. Thank you so much.
4: Great question. So your resume will be enough. For fiction, having shorter pieces published is great, but not a requirement by any means. That's because a novel will sell based on the strength of your story. So here's what I recommend. Make sure that your author bio paragraph makes reference to the fact that you have experience in the industry featured in your novel. So you mentioned that you worked in the travel business and your novel is set in the travel business. So tell me that. As an agent, that tidbit is not only interesting, it's a promise. It's promising me that your pages will be flourishing with authenticity and details that only an insider can know. And good
1: luck. Wonderful, Cece. Thank you. Okay, here's our third question, which Carly is going to answer for us.
3: Hi, everyone. I'm wondering if you have any advice for dealing with fake versus real places in settings and fiction stories. For example, if your story is set in a real place, like a big city in New York or Los Angeles, when do you make up places like a restaurant or a magazine or a place of work? And when's a good idea to include real places that really existed during the time that your story is set? What's a good way to strike that balance? Thank you so much.
0: I really like this question. I actually, in all the years of doing this job, I feel like I've heard every question that could have been asked, but I've actually, this is a great question that I've never actually had to answer, I don't think, before. So my feeling is that you generally, there's the dividing line between what can be fake and what can be real. So here's what I think locations that will always be there should be real for example like you said LA New York that sort of thing so if you're talking about a certain beach right like Zuma or Malibu beaches like those are always going to be the beaches those are always going to be there right so like those are the things that we can get specific about things that you might want to make up are things like restaurants because they might close you know like you don't want to date your book by naming a restaurant. And then all of a sudden when your book comes out, it's like, oh, that restaurant's closed. You know what I mean? Unless it's like a super favorite thing where you want to do like a wink, wink, nod, nod to like your favorite store, your favorite restaurant. So that's kind of my rule. Like if it's going to be around forever real, and if it is going to be something that might disappear, such as a restaurant or a store fake, that's generally what I think. But you know, I I think this is a great question.
1: Wonderful, Carly. Okay, next question. And Cece is going to tackle this one. My manuscript has a a one-and-a-half-page prologue. It's a fast-forward to a time near the end of my story that
5: asks a question about first memories. Chapter one is my first memory. A scary, inciting scene. Question. Most agents say prologues are bad. Will the prologue in the first 10 pages with query cause an agent to delete? Thanks. Do
4: you know what I love about our community? How close we are. Because I recognize this listener from our interactions on Twitter. And I know she's writing a memoir. So therefore, my answer to you, Linda, is you're probably fine to keep the prologue. 1.5 pages is a great length. It's short. A lot of memoirs have prologues. It's a choice that often works really well for the genre. I will say that it's really important to make sure that the prologue is really hooking the reader's attention and to make sure that chapter one is equally as gripping. Having a prologue means having two beginnings, right? Like chapter one is a beginning. The prologue is also a beginning. And that means that both beginnings need to be incredibly captivating. So you asked, will the prologue cause an agent to delete? Like it wouldn't cause me to delete. That seems really unfair. Can I be absolutely sure that your prologue is working? No, not without reading it. The Glass Castle has a prologue and it works brilliantly. Other memoirs do not have a prologue and they also work brilliantly like Wild Game, for example. So I get submissions where the prologue works and submissions in which it doesn't, and it's totally dependent on the story, but do feel secure in the fact that it is quite common for the genre and typically works well for the genre when well executed. Trust your beta readers, trust your critique partners, and most of all, trust yourself.
1: Thank you, Cece. Okay, this next one is a suggestion and I will be replying to it.
3: Hi, Bianca, Carly, and Cece. I have a part question, part suggestion. I was wondering, would it be possible to add a section to your website for authors to submit updates when their previous Books with Hooks submissions have a publication date? In the few months since I discovered your podcast, I have heard so many amazing queries and first pages that I am just dying to read. So obviously these manuscripts are years away from publication, but when they are, I want to know. And I'm sure that there are lots of books with book submissions from the early days in your podcast that have now been published. So not only would this let us as listeners know when these incredible books are being published, but it would also give the authors built in readers. So a win-win for everyone. Thank you for considering the suggestion.
1: Right. Thank you so much for that. We actually have a whole bunch of surprises coming up after our virtual retreat when we have time to regroup and launch a few new things. And this was going to be one of them. So we're actually going to have a page on our website in which you can fill out a form with some kind of shout out and some kind of feedback. And it doesn't just have to be if you landed an agent or if you got published, perhaps you won a contest, perhaps, you know, something else happened that you would like to share with our listeners in terms of, you know, just, the wins, because this industry is so hard. And I say it all the time, we need to celebrate every single win along the way. You know, you go out on submission, that's a win. You get feedback actually from an editor, even if they turn down your manuscript, that's a win because it doesn't always happen, etc. So we definitely, definitely will be doing that. Watch out for it from October, November, when we'll be announcing that and a few more other surprises for you. Okay. Here we have another question.
3: Hello. So my question is for Bianca, and it's about writing groups. And specifically, I'm wondering what you think is the best time to join a writing group? I'm still in the very early stages of writing my novel, and on the one hand, I'd love to have some community support and accountability as I get started and get to know the writing community where I live. But I also worry it's a little bit too soon to get feedback when my project is just getting off the ground. So I would love to hear about your experience with writing groups and when you've found them to be most helpful. Thank you so much, and thank you for all the work you do on the podcast. I absolutely love listening and really appreciate all that the
1: three of you do. Okay, and I'll be answering this one. So the thing with this is, is it's hugely, hugely subjective. There are some people who love joining writing groups very early on in the writing process and they love getting feedback as they're writing to make sure that they don't go off on a tangent or go down the wrong path. I am one of those people. I, from chapter one, I like getting CC's feedback. I like getting my writing group's feedback, but I know a ton of writers who that makes them overly anxious. And so they go into this tailspin of just revising and revising opening chapters and they don't make any progress. So honestly, this is not a question that I can answer for you. You need to understand how your process works, at what point you like getting feedback I will just say that in a writing group to wait until you've finished your novel and then ask them for feedback is difficult because people are busy and for them to try and read an entire manuscript in one go in the time that you need them to do it so that you can do your revisions can be really tough. So just keep that in mind if you're the kind of person who doesn't like feedback along the way. But if you don't know what kind of person you are, try it out, you know, send three early chapters to beta readers get their feedback, see how you feel about it. And if it feels good to you, then I would suggest starting a writing group earlier. If that causes you anxiety, then I would say, you know, do it a bit later. I will be doing another beta read matchup in October, and that might be a nice chance for you to to test which one works for you. Okay, now we're moving on to the next question, which Carly is going to answer for us. Hi, Bianca, Carly, and Cece. Thank you so much for the podcast. I'm working on my first
3: novel, and it's been so helpful. So please keep the great content coming. I'm wondering if you could clarify what to do when you're done with your first draft. I've written the last line, and now what? Should I try to edit it myself? Should I hire someone? Should I try to query, thinking that the agent will also help in editing it all? Does landing an agent mean that you get editing help? with the agency. I just really don't know a lot about the process. So how polished does it need to be before I query it? And if it needs to be printing press ready, who do I go to to help me tighten things up and edit? Thank you guys so
0: much. That's a great segue into this question. All right. So... Critique groups, workshops, conferences, local writing events—you you do really have to find your people. You know, I I'm I don't generally advocate that you need to hire an editor, but I also don't think you should submit too early. And it's really hard for me to kind of just you know offer up advice without reading anything, obviously not understanding any context or anything about your work. But if you feel like the book is lost, like if you finished it and you're just like, I don't know what my book is, like then you might need to hire an editor, right? Like I would not send it to an agent because an agent's job is to sell the book. An agent's job isn't to edit your book. We do polish it. And I do do anywhere between kind of one to three rounds of edits with my clients. But you know, my job isn't to edit. That—that's just not really in my in my job description. My job is to sell books and manage careers. Right? We're we're moving into that next phase of your career. But I will say, so if you do if you do end up hiring somebody, you you do get what you pay for with editing, right? Like you want somebody with some sort of credentials, or they've edited a a published book that you really like, you know, like really. We just don't want to be hiring anybody to edit our books because it is a trained skill, right? You're not if you're looking for just a reader, then you're looking for a critique group, right? A beta reader, you know, get involved with these workshops conferences local writing events like i mentioned right find your people so so important to have people you know in your community and and like bianca said she's going to open it up to do more of beta matching soon so really stay tuned to our socials and we'll try to hook some more of you guys up with critique partners
1: can i just say carly said doo-doo <laughs> okay my inner middle grader is now out so we can move on <laughs> Okay, here's our next one, which is actually a lovely reminder to the Kofi supporters. Hi, Bianca, Carly, and Cece. This is not a question,
5: but rather a reminder for your supporters. I'm a monthly supporter, but I've always felt too busy to check the Kofi notes. A few weeks ago, I had some unexpected downtime when events were canceled. I started going through the notes. I love seeing Carly and Cece's comments in writing. They reinforce what I heard on the podcast. I also love the notes, successful queries, and more that the interviewed authors kindly share. As I read through many weeks' worth of content, I berated myself for being the one person who is a supporter but not checking the content. Then I thought, nope, people are crazy busy, and I bet there are others just like me. To those folks, jump in during any downtime. The shortest break in your schedule is long
1: enough to check a single week's content. You deserve the help. Thanks for all you do. Right. And what I'd just like to say about this is thank you for that lovely shout out. And yes, you know, we are all people who learn differently. Some people learn by listening. Some people learn by reading and seeing something in action. I'm one of those people. You know, I I do learn by listening, but I learn so much more when I look at a piece of work and see how someone's critiqued it or how they've rejigged it, etc. So for those of you who do learn that way, you know, this is a great opportunity for you to do that. And if you can't afford to support the podcast on a monthly basis, you know, just do a once-off donation and you'll get access to the Kofi content for a month. And that might also, you know, be a great way for you to learn. But for those of you who are catching up and who are supporters, the content is always there. We don't take it down. You can come back to it whenever you need to. For those of you who are recurring monthly supporters, for those of you who do once off, the content is unfortunately only available for a month. So you do need to be on top of that. Okay, now we're going to the next one, which Cece is going to handle for us.
6: Hey, Bianca. Hey, Carly. Hey, Cece. I absolutely love the podcast. I so wish I discovered it earlier in my writing journey. It would have saved me a lot of struggle, a lot of headaches, but hey, better late than never. My question is about an author's social media following and if whether or not a strong social media following is worth mentioning in a query letter. I'm only asking because I am beginning the querying process soon, but as a debut author or hopefully soon to be debut author, I don't really have a lot of credentials to sort of beef up the author bio section of my query letter with, but I I do have a really strong following on TikTok, almost 30,000 fans.
4: So is that something worth mentioning to agents? Okay, good question. I would add a line about it in your query letter, in your author bio. I will say that this really does depend on what genre you write in, what category really you write in, because you didn't tell us. So for nonfiction, demonstrable expertise is expected, meaning showing that you are a sought after expert expert and, you know, that usually does mean having a social media following. But for fiction, it's not expected. It's definitely a plus. Regardless of the genre, being fluent in the language of social media is never a bad thing. So I would include that in your author bio, and I would include your handles too. I love it when authors include their handles at, on the signature of their, of their letters because it's a great way for us to look you up. So yeah, that's what I would say.
1: Can I just add to this, Cece? Because I had a really good question yesterday at an event I did. There was an author there who's in her 70s. And she is busy getting published now, which is amazing. So for our listeners who feel like you have to finish a novel and get published before you 30, that is absolutely not the case. But she did have a question, and she was asking about ageism in the industry. And she said, are agents and editors likely to look up authors and go, oh, okay, you're, you know but older than I would have liked to have represent and therefore I may not do that. And I, you know, I said to her, I hope not, but there has been a study that said that more than fifty percent of people in the world are ageist and it is the most socially acceptable prejudice. So I'd just like to hear, you know, when you look up social media handles, does that affect your decision making at all?
4: For me, it affects it only in the sense that if I see something really troubling, like In cell (laughs) behavior, I will not be reaching out to you. It's really just that in terms of like not really affecting. I do think that there's something to be said about adding personality to your query as a bonus. I am not going to be requesting pages because you tell me you have a cute dog, right? But I still love hearing that you have a cute dog. Same goes for seeing a cute dog photo on on Instagram. And, you know, in terms of ageism, like, I get it. I remember going back to school for publishing, being in my mid-30s, and thinking to myself, all these kids are 22. Why would a publisher hire me? In five years, I'll be protected by the law for a whole bunch of things because I'll be 40, and they're 22, right? So I remember feeling that. And I'm not going to lie. The world is ageist. I will say that, in my opinion, as far as industries go, writers typically get better with time, right? It's one of those skills that you get better. It's like wine. <laughs> you write better as you age, if you keep working on your writing, of course. So I hope that that will encourage people to to still keep trying and to still believe in humanity, because there are a lot of people out there who want to find that next great talent and who don't care really how, about how old someone is.
1: So yeah, that's what I would say. That was exactly the answer I gave, so we're aligned here. Okay, next question, which Carly's going to answer. I want to know how can you distribute your book through bookshops if there's only one main distributor in your country and they take 55%. Thanks a million.
0: Okay, this is a tricky one because ultimately the book business and the bookseller Publisher relationship is quite streamlined, right? There are distribution services that cover how we get books into bookstores, right? Ingram Distribution, Penguin Random House has a huge distribution system, and you know Simon and Schuster as well. They distribute for all these other small publishers. So, all of this is done to make bookshops' lives easier, right? Like if everybody went in and pitched their book to a bookshop solo, like we wouldn't have we wouldn't have the staff to handle this all, right? So there's a process for that. When you are an indie author, which I assume this person is, you. Have to live and work outside of the mainstream sometimes, right? Which is which is great. That's why you got into indie, but also has its challenges. But I will say that local bookstores often have a local author table. So I would go in and say I'm a local author. You know, just say I'm willing to events or signings and this and that. You know, just talk about your book, explain that you're local. But in order to get your book distributed nationally you have to kind of be within Ingram or one of these other distribution services. So unless you're kind of a, 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 like a bestseller already, again, a bestseller that a bookstore would kind of recognize as being bestselling, which I mean, is like not kind of popping up on the Amazon charts for a day, that sort of thing. You know, those are the reasons why distribution exists. So I would start local, you know, tapping on the doors of your local booksellers. But nationally, I do think that's quite a big hurdle.
1: Thanks, Carly. Yeah, I know I know authors who publish, who are indie publishers, who go to an Indigo, a local Indigo, and chat to booksellers there and manage to get their books on the shelves there as well. So, you know, interact with people, network with people, chat to people. You, you never know what kind of connections you're going to make there. Okay, next question, and we'll ask Cece to answer this one. Hello. If you are a self-published author and you have a new novel out published, Can you still approach an agent with that or publishing houses with it to see if they take you on? Thank you.
4: So, okay. I think the question here is whether self-published authors can approach agents or a publishing house with their previously self-published work. And unfortunately, no is the answer. Most agents are looking for works that have never been published. And that's because most publishers are looking for that. And we sell to them. So if you would rather be traditionally published as opposed to self-published, I would encourage you to write another book because you have to anyway, right? An author's career is always about what they're working on now and then query that one. If you are asking me, and I don't think you are, but if you are asking me, well, I do have self-published works, but I have a new one now that's great. It's not a bad thing to be self-published. It's usually not a bad or a good thing. It's something that we, what we're looking at first and foremost is the strength of your your work that's being submitted and considered now. Then we're going to think about other aspects of your career, including, you know, do you have a publication history or not? But yeah.
1: Wasn't Coho Colleen Hoover self-published at some point? And I think her entire backlist is now on the New York Times bestseller list. It is crazy to watch it's like colleen could you step back give the rest of us a damn chance woman
4: it's i mean she's she's everywhere right and i will say that there are these stories right you have these stories of like oh yeah but so and so self-published and now she's and and yes it happens but for the most part because we do get dms on twitter all the time asking us oh i have this book it's self-published i would like to make it now traditionally published and For the most part, it's not going to happen. I don't mean to be harsh, but when I say work on something else, I'm not being dismissive of the self-published work. I will say just you have to anyway, you're going to need a new book.
0: I also wanted to mention, I've talked about it before, but I represent Kirsten Moglin, who is a self-published author. And her and I work together really great. And the way that we work together is she self-publishes her novels and I sell TV, film, audio, and translation rights. But she has sold almost a million copies in her career, right? So like that's kind of, and I started working with her when she was maybe at about like 300,000. So like we're talking about a, a solid number of copies, right? Before we can find a way to kind of break into to other markets. And Kirsten is also going to be, At our retreat coming up on September 24th and 25th. And she's gonna be doing a wonderful talk about being an indie author, building your brand as an indie author, how to connect with fans as an indie author. It's going to be amazing because she truly has some of the best fans in the business and she sold almost a million copies now. So make sure you check that out.
1: Thank you. Right. Okay. We're going to our next question and we're going to ask Carly to answer this one for us. Hi Bianca,
6: Cece, and Carly. Thank you so much for the shit no one tells you about writing podcasts and all of the other things that you do to support emerging writers like me. I am reading my first advanced reader copy and I've noticed a number of errors and inconsistencies ranging from, you know, missing quotation marks to misspelled names of characters. And I just wonder at the arc stage in the game, is this to be expected or is that a red flag that the publisher and or, you know, the author didn't do their due diligence? Thanks so much for listening and for considering answering my question on your amazing podcast. Take
0: care. Oh, this is a great question. And I think a a really good one just to kind of explain to our, our listeners. So this person mentioned an ARC, right? Some people think like, what's an ARC? So ARC stands for Advanced Review Copy. And so these are printed Very far in advance of the actual publication of the book. You know, this is one of the earliest things we start to do. And it's called advanced review copy because it's sent to reviewers, you know, maybe bookstagrammers, bloggers, trade reviews, that sort of thing, you know, trying to get coverage from in magazines. So this is going out really early and it's early days. So sometimes they are printed before they have gone through multiple rounds of, you know, the final editing. So they've probably been developmentally edited by the by the editor at the publishing house might have gone through copy edits but probably hasn't gone through proofreads. And so that's probably what you're what you're noticing is that maybe the the book that you got probably has some errors in it. And it is so normal. Please please do not take this as a sign of anything other than publishing doing its job because the job is let's get Early excitement for this book. And so anybody who is reading an advanced review copy in the trade business just knows that there are going to be errors and we don't hold that against it. It's really just about early buzz for the actual book itself. And then if there was an excerpt to be done of the book or a quote or something like that, then people know that they're supposed to go to the publisher to get clearance for permission to actually print something, you know, in, in a in a magazine or something like that. So totally normal, totally normal. Um, I can understand how you might be raising your eyebrows. I was at that, but yeah, totally normal in the ARC stage, the advanced review copy stage. Obviously, by the time the book comes out, we would hope that it's gone through all of its copy edits, all of its proofreads, the authors seen their first pass pages, second pass pages, third pass pages. Sometimes there's fourth pass pages that authors are, you know,
1: proofing, making sure it's good to go. But yes, these advanced review copies are early. Yeah, mine had a huge bunch of errors in it that when I was reading it, I was like, damn, I didn't pick up a lot of these. But yeah, it is is totally normal. Okay, we're going on now to our third last question, and we're going to ask Cece to answer this one. Hello, I'm writing a dual timeline novel. And as I get my query package ready, I'm wondering how
3: to write a synopsis. Do I structure it chronologically, one timeline and then the other, or threaded together like in the book? Thank you so much.
7: Okay, great
4: question. I would thread it together like in the book. This will allow the reader to know when each reveal occurs. And more importantly, you know, with dual timeline books, your job is to show that the two storylines come together in a way that are, that's greater than the sum of their parts. And a synopsis that does thread the story together will ensure that. So absolutely thread it together.
1: Thank you, Cece. Okay, second last question now, and we're going to ask Carly to answer it. Hello, lovely ladies. Thank you so much for doing this for
8: us. I have now started the querying process, and I think I'd misunderstood how it works. I previously believed that I would hopefully, find an agent. And if successful, the agents would then find a publisher and the publishers would then hire an editor. But on one of your podcasts, you seem to explain that that process was different in that the editor had actually approached the publishing houses. So now I'm a little bit confused and I wonder if you could just give us a little bit more detail on the submission process. Thank you.
0: All right. So this is another one I'm, I'm happy to expand on. So yeah, I, I think you might have misunderstood the process. So I'm just going to kind of explain it beginning to end. So the submission process, right? So you, the author, are querying your book. You are then trying to get an agent with that book. And then the agent then signs the client. As I mentioned kind of before, we, we will do some polishing, could be anywhere from one to three rounds of editings. I've literally never in 13 years taken a manuscript from the slush pile and then immediately sent it out. Like there is always work to be done in some capacity. And so I'm going to help do some of this polishing. And then we are sending it to an editor at the publishing house, they are our point person at the publishing house. So they are the one who we will be interacting with, you know, to start off in terms of pitching the books. And if we were to get feedback, everything is kind of flow flows through the editor. If an editor wants to buy the book, they then take it to their editorial board meeting and their acquisitions meeting. So not only are they kind of clearing it with their editing department, they're also then they go to the acquisitions meeting, where they're sitting at a boardroom with people from publicity and marketing and sales and rights, you know, everybody, right. So they need sign off from everybody. And then once they get signed up from everybody, because of course they will, they'll come back to us. They will present their offer, and once again, all of this is done through the through the editor. And then once we are, are negotiated, very tough where we've been at auction. You know, we've, we're feeling good about our deal. We accept our deal again through the editor, and then we start to get into our editorial process with some publishing houses. Parts of the editorial process could be outsourced. So, for example, some publishers, the editor's job is to buy the book, and then somebody else is going to do a developmental edit. Or in house, they don't have copy editing department and proofreading department. A lot of this is all outsourced now. So there are parts of the process that could be outsourced outside of the publishing house, but we still have our editor who does the editing. Again, our point person at the publisher. So I hope that kind of explains a little bit about the the team members there. But feel free to send in Another question later on, and
1: I'm happy to answer it via audio again. Thank you, Carly. Before we go to our last question, just remember if you would like to submit a question either to Carly and CeCe or myself, or if you would like to ask for comp titles from a bookseller, go to our website, The Shit About Writing. There is a page called Submit a Question. You do the one minute recording max, and then we'll try and get to that as soon as we can the following month. Right, CeCe, will you answer the last question for us? Hello. First
5: of all, thank you so much for doing this. The podcast has been a huge help since I started my current work in progress, and I'm really grateful for everything you do and all the knowledge that you share. I have a question that's been on my mind since I started working on my current work in progress. Comp titles should be very recent, but if a book talk trend puts an older title back into the spotlight, does it create an exception to that rule, or is it still preferable to avoid mentioning it? For example, My Work in Progress is a mystery novel that's inspired by the dark academia trend that's really big on TikTok right now. And The Secret History by Donna Tartt is a big influence on my novel. So it would feel weird not mentioning it. And it's also having a big revival right now. So it's a really relevant book at the moment. But I'm not sure if I should include it in a query letter since it's from 92. Thank you so much for your insight on my question.
4: This is a really great question. I had to think about it. I would say that it does create an exception. I would still like you want two comps, right? I would still have the other comp be a more recent title. But I think it's fair to say, I mean, this book is having a moment. It's everywhere. People are excited about it. It's almost like a second life. And so the purpose of your comps is really to position your book so that when editors are figuring out how how much to pay you, essentially, they can look at these other books that sold really well and say, yes, this should be the advance because, you know, these other books that are really similar, they did well. So. A book that's having a second life, I do think that it makes sense to be able to use it as a comp, but try to have the other one be recent. And, you know, if you want to add in a TV show or another medium, that's always okay too, Um, but books are preferable.
1: Thanks, Cece. Right. Thank you to both Carly and Cece for taking the time to answer these questions. We hope you've enjoyed our bonus episode and that you're going to enjoy our new bonus episodes going forward. And please submit those questions.
0: Did you know that 70% of all books are sold online via e-commerce? If you're an author wondering how you can get some of that market share, this is for you. Hi, I'm your co-host, Carly Waters, and I'm here to tell you how writers can work on their author brand to build an audience and convert those followers into book buyers. Everything that will change the course of your writing career, go to carlywaters.com slash course to learn more and use discount code POD15 for the month of April at checkout. That's POD15 P O at checkout over at carlywaters.com slash course. Hi,
7: everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or The interiority here needs work and that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6th at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th also at 8pm via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there.
1: Hi everyone, welcome back to another comps session. For those of you who aren't regular listeners, you follow a link on our website, theshitaboutwriting.com and you leave a voice recording for up until a minute, giving us either your questions on publishing or giving us more information about your work in progress so that we can then offer you comps. So if you're interested in that, find the link and leave some messages for us. Now today we are joined by Elizabeth Held, who is a writer and avid reader living in in Washington DC. She runs a Romance Book Club and is a member of at least three more. She's working on what she hopes will be her first novel and she runs the What to Read If Substack. Elizabeth, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here. We're excited to have you and we really appreciate the work that you put into coming up with the comp titles. And you know, for our listeners, when you do leave that message, give as much information as you possibly can, including tone, not just plot, etc., but tone is is important and genre as well. Alright, Elizabeth, will you kick us off with the first one?
9: I'm seeking comps for my multi-POV novel, based in Silicon Valley, entitled The Mother, She's a Bitch. You're not supposed to hate your mother, but what happens when you do? At her therapist's advice, Jamie attends group therapy for daughters of narcissistic mothers. The other women there seem nothing like her, and Jamie vows to never show her face again. When events beyond their control force them together, they realise they have the same goal, to rid their lives of the toxic relationships with their conniving mothers, who won't take no for an answer, causing mayhem between marriages and putting innocents in danger to get what they want. Full control over their daughters and the matriarchal seat. Jamie, Vivian, Frankie and Maylin form at first fraught friendships, where boundaries are crossed and tension surmounts. But when they realise their collective power and play to their strengths, They are finally able to oust their mothers and build back their lives, realising family is what you make it. Well, this
10: sounds really interesting, and I hope to see it on shelves soon. I have a few options for you. I'm not quite sure about the tone, so these books have a range of tone for you to consider. The Startup Wife is a feminist satire set in Silicon Valley, like your book, and I think you'll find some things to relate there. It's about a couple that launches an app. She's the brains, but he becomes the tech guru. For the mother-daughter relationships, you might want to check out Burnt Sugar by by Avni Doshar. It's about a daughter in India caring for her narcissistic mother who is struggling with Alzheimer's. For the female friendships aspect of your book, I absolutely love Laura Hankin's work. She's funny, she's smart, and she writes a lot about different groups of women working together. And finally, there's two nonfiction books that I'm just going to throw out there for you to consider. The first is Group by Christy Tate, which is a memoir about group therapy. And the second one just comes out this month, and it's I'm Glad My Mother Died by Jeanette McCurdy, who was a child star. She starred in the Nickelodeon show with Ariana Grande, and her mom really pushed her in ways that were somewhat destructive, helped her develop an eating disorder, that sort of thing. And her mother died, and this is her memoir about their relationship. So
1: you might find something in there to consider. Wonderful, Elizabeth. Thank you. All right. We're about to play the second one.
5: Thank you for the podcast and providing all of us new writers with comps. It's a very wonderful service. My novel is a traditional mystery. Claire is a protagonist. She moves from the Chicago suburbs to downstate Illinois, small rural town, with her minister husband. New to the pastor's role, she struggles to be herself, how to fit in, and trying to understand the older women of the congregation and their culture, of which she has no experience with. All of her struggles with these women mirror her relationship with her mother. She decides to solve the murder because of gossips who blame her husband. She uncovered betrayal and old wounds and wonders if secrets should stay secret. I must know if this is not religious fiction, but it does show inclusive acceptance and love. Thank you very much.
10: I love traditional mysteries, and there are a surprising number of them featuring religious leaders, whether they're reverends, priests, as sleuths. So your books immediately reminded me of Julia Spencer Fleming's Claire Ferguson, Russ Van Alstyne series, which has been around for a while. So in them, Claire is a new minister in a small upstate New York town, somewhat similar to your Illinois small town, and she's struggling to fit in, and they're offer the mysteries like yours, but they also have some of that religious commentary and religious themes. Emily Richards' A Truth for the Truth is the start of a cozy mystery series starring a, a pastor's wife, which should give you something to think about. And then for the mother-daughter aspect, you might consider Killing Time by Brenna Ehrlich. That's a thriller told but in alternating mother and daughter voices.
1: Wonderful. Thank you. Okay, here's the next one. Hi.
8: I'm seeking comps for a psychological thriller wrapped around a budding romantic relationship between two NYU students, a male and a female. There's a huge twist at the end after she's targeted by a deranged ex-CIA mercenary who's under the psychotic delusion she's in love with him. Fearing involvement by law enforcement because of the mercenary's murky alliances, the male student becomes her de facto bodyguard, and they must survive a 24-hour gauntlet in Manhattan in his crosshairs. I feel the story shares romantic relationship themes with the movie The Bodyguard and at the same time has some of the dark undertones of Hitchcock's North by Northwest, where an unsuspecting protagonist is thrust into a world where he must fight for his life. But both of those seem a little too dated to use, so thank you so much for any suggestions you might have.
10: So this sounds like a great romantic suspense plot. Adriana Anders has some really fun romantic suspense series uh, that starts with Whiteout, and that book reminded me of yours because it features a cook and a glaciologist, so not two CIA agents running away from danger. For a bodyguard romance, check out Guarding Temptation by Talia Hibbert. And I'd also like to suggest you read Laura Griffin's Texas Murder File books. They mix mystery and romance, and the first two books pair a law enforcement agent with someone outside the the law enforcement sector. So there's a reporter and a photographer, and they're working together to expose corruption and avoid danger.
1: Oh, that sounds like a lot of fun. Okay, next one.
6: Hey, Bianca. I'm so appreciative for the opportunity to ask a comps question. I'm writing a dual POV thriller where the main point of view is first person and the second point of view is third person. It's a missing person thriller that takes place over just 12 hours, where the main character is racing against the clock to find something that the antagonist is willing to kill for. It's filled with dark, morally ambiguous characters, but at the center is a mother's love for her daughter, a daughter she'd do anything to save. In this way, I think Lisa Jewell is a decent comp because of the type of character she writes or Harlan Coben because of the twists and turns. And its point of view structure is kind of like Lauren Bukes' Broken Monsters. But I'm struggling to find something that fits perfectly for all those pieces within the timeline I've built into this Race Against the Clock style story. Any help would be greatly appreciated. I love the podcast. Thanks so much for your help.
10: I was not able to find a book that checked all of your boxes, but I have a few for you to check out. The Chain by Adrian McKinty reminded me of your book. In it, a mother receives a phone call that her daughter has been kidnapped, and the only way her child will be freed is if she kidnaps another child, continuing that chain. So it features multiple perspectives, as well as questions about what will a parent do to protect their child, and a lot of moral ambiguity. Hostage by Claire McIntosh has a similar sort of theme. On a flight, a mom receives a message that to prevent her daughter's death, she'll need to let a terrorist into the cockpit of the plane. And finally, I want to throw out Kat Rosenfield's No One Will Miss Her, which came out earlier this year. It alternates between the first and the third person and uses that to make some really interesting reveals.
1: Wonderful, Elizabeth. Okay, next one. Hi, Cece,
6: Bianca, and Carly, and/or a bookseller. Thank you all for the amazing work you do to produce the podcast. I have a question about comps that could be good for you all or for a bookseller. My book is a contemporary YA with a speculative twist. It's set in near future NYC at an elite private school where students are now dealing with a new college process: the SAD system. An implant an accompanying app that rates everything students do on a social academic activism and diversity scale my protagonist is on top of gold tier until the colleges secretly track kids phones and secrets start to come out i think of it as gossip girl meets black mirror however both of those are best known as tv shows and slightly old at that i'm wondering if that's either a okay or b not cool and i should find some book comps i've worked really hard to try and find some but i'm having trouble finding something that isn't a murder mystery the I've used by alexa dunn is close but again it has murder which my book doesn't i'm hoping that i can find a comfort voice and a slight speculative bend such as Adam Silvera and hope that's close enough. Any guidance would be so helpful. Thank you. Okay.
10: I love a YA thriller. A few for you to consider. Ace of Spades by Farida Abike Amide is best described as Gossip Girl meets Get Out. There's no murder, though, like your book. The other thing you might check out for Gossip Girl vibes is How We Fall Apart by Katie Zhao. Lie Is My Memory Told Me by Sasha Wunsch adds the speculative aspect and that kind of neurology brain focus that you have. And finally, Game Changer by Neil Schusterman has some speculative elements to
1: a high school story wonderful all righty let's listen to the next one
11: hi there i'm looking for some help with comps for my psychological scholar 15 years ago mel was abused by the man who is now president of the united states now she's assigned to be his doctor and has a chance for revenge she thinks she could get away with it and the country already in turmoil over corrupt men in power will probably thank her but it might cost her her marriage it's a psychological thriller, much in the tone of uh, Paula Hawkins' A Slow Fire Burning, which I love as a comp, but wonder if it's too popular. It's also got this political stance where it happens within the world of the Oval Office. So I thought of Robert Harris's The Ghost and David Baldacci's Absolute Power as really good comps for that angle, but they're both really old. And I'm not sure what would be a better modern version.
10: Okay, I have been thinking of this as a hashtag resistance me too thriller. So, a few books for you to consider. For the political thriller aspect, *Our American Friend* by Anna Patonic is a really propulsive political thriller about a Melania Trump type First Lady who hires a reporter to finally air all the secrets in an official biography. *Widowland*, which comes out this summer, is a new alternative history thirteen years after England surrendered to the Nazis, and the government grows suspicious of a group of women over fifty shut away in a world called Little Land are trying to spark a rebellion. For the feminist psychological thriller check out they never learn by lane fargo it's about a professor who murders abusive men and the missing hours by julia doll follows a sexual assault survivor trying to get justice and then two movies i thought i'd throw out there would be promising young woman and the assistant
1: yeah always great to to be able to mix up your book titles with film titles if they really really are apt okay elizabeth here is our next one
6: Hi, I'm Jennifer. I'm requesting comp recommendations.
4: I have a middle-grade fantasy novel set on a version of Earth where magic is a known force that lies dormant until it is triggered by emotional outbursts. My protagonist is a 12-year-old girl with the ability to sense magical activity. She senses her new neighborhood fusing together, trapping four families who are strangers to each other in connected houses with no exit. The boy who didn't want to play outside turns into a monster of his own creation and impulsively brings clay creatures to life, endangering his family and neighbors. The grown-ups are gradually detained until the children from all four homes are the ones saving them from magical mayhem. The story is a fun and frightening adventure with core elements of child empowerment and building bonds in a community of circumstance.
10: Thank you so much for doing this. I always find comps challenging. So you've got a middle-grade magical realism book here, which I think sounds a lot of fun. I want to suggest Valentina Salazar is not a monster hunter by Zoraida Cordova. So it features a girl and her siblings who are tasked with protecting the world from dangerous magical creatures. Think of it as a middle-grade Buffy. Like a Charm by Elle McNichol, Is about a young girl who can sense magical creatures, kind of like how your protagonist can sense magic. The Green Glass House by Kate Mitford is mild fantasy. I mention it because the house plays a big part, which it sounds like yours might do as well. And similarly, for a magical house, would be The House at the Edge of Magic by Amy Sparks. And finally, because I love it so much and it reminded me of your themes of child empowerment and building community, When You Trap a Tiger by Ty Keller is just
1: a really lovely middle grade book. My to be read pile is growing exponentially. Thank you so much for joining us and for all of these awesome comp titles. You know, that's the thing for our listeners when, when you're able to at least narrow down for people like Elizabeth in terms of the tone, etc., then the comps are able to become much more specific. Whereas, you know, if you leave it up to us to try and figure out what kind of tone or what kind of vibe you're going for, then it's going to be much broader in terms of the recommendations. But certainly always go read all the the comp titles that have been recommended because there may be, you know, the tone from one that really suits your story, but something about plot or characterization or theme from another story as well. Elizabeth, thank you so much for taking the time out. It was wonderful chatting with you.
10: Thanks for having me anytime.
1: We are so excited for our upcoming virtual retreat on the 24th and 25th of September, in which we'll have more than 20 hours of phenomenal, jam packed content, which is the equivalent of doing a 10 week creative writing course, except with the kind of guest speakers you'd never have access to otherwise. We have such an amazing lineup for you, including New York Times best selling authors. Three of Reese's book club pick authors, award-winning editors and writing coaches. You'll learn about point of view, structure, plotting, writing a proposal, outlining your novel, and much, much more. You'll also learn about current market trends and how they shape what agents and editors are actively looking for, as well as how to attract an agent's attention. You'll be taught how to craft page-turning bestsellers, how to overcome rejection, and what to expect from the writing life. Besides all of this, we're helping you discover a community on our retreat. Facebook page, in the breakaway sessions with Carly, Cece and myself, and in the various social activities we have planned from the Friday night onwards. All the sessions will have Q&As so that you can speak directly with authors and editors at the top of their game. The retreat will be recorded so that if there's a day you can't attend, you'll still be able to catch up immediately afterwards. And then you'll get to ask us your burning questions in the post retreat Q&A Zoom on the 3rd of October. Come and engage, interact, learn and grow. We can't wait to see you there.
0: Did you know that 70% of all books are sold online via e-commerce? If you're an author wondering how you can get some of that market share, this is for you. Hi, I'm your co-host, Carly Waters, and I'm here to tell you how writers can work on their author brand to build an audience and convert those followers into book buyers. Everything that will change the course of your writing career, go to carlywaters.com slash course to learn more and use discount code POD15 for the month of April at checkout. That's POD15 P O at checkout over at carlywaters.com slash course.
7: Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or, The interiority here needs work, and that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6th at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th also at 8pm via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're
1: interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another comps session with the fabulous Emily Summer from East City Bookshop. Emily, welcome back. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me again. It's been a while. It's great to be back. I know. It's been too long. We took a break over the summer, but we've hit the ground running. So for our listeners, with this episode, we caught up on all of our comps. So if you have any comp questions, please go to our website, The Shit About Writing, find the question tab. You have one minute to do a voice recording. Some people freak out and say it's giving them nightmares to do the recording. Maybe write down your question and then read it for us. And we're going to be doing one bonus episode a month in which we get all of your questions answered and all of your comps done. Right. So let us kick off. Here is the first comps Question.
2: Good morning. Good morning. Thank you in advance for taking my question. So Castaneda, a 14 year old girl just moved from Haiti to Ottawa, Canada with her parents due to her father's political item work that may have possibly had their lives in danger after her uncle was killed. Now in a new world with new faces, a new culture, she has to navigate through everything a girl her age goes through in high school on top of the culture barrier. All she wants to do is run track ever since she watched the Olympics and fell in love with the 100 and 200 meters, and now also wanting to be part of a new appealing North American culture that her friends make it hard to resist. Friends, a boy, bullies, her vitiligo, and if that wasn't enough, her strict as heck parents that barely lets her breathe. Does she get to grow in this new culture? And above all else, does she get to run? So I have comps, Poet X by Elizabeth Acevedo, which hits the culture and the parenting, the hate you give, which is the pace, and the other one, Ghosts by Jason Reynolds, but that's a middle grade comp. What else could I use?
12: So I love this question because this tells me that your listeners are really getting the hang of how to, to query and how to comp because the qu- comps that were given in the recording, I think, are perfect. Even before I heard this listener suggest The Poet X, that is the first thing that I thought of. So absolutely, it's a masterpiece. It sounds spot on. So absolutely, Comp, The Poet X by the wonderful Elizabeth Acevedo. The Hate You Give, I think, sounds excellent to comp for this. And then Ghost by Jason Reynolds. I think that's still a really good one to mention, even though it's middle grade, because people do immediately recognize Jason Reynolds as a brand. They know what he does. He's fantastic. And he does write middle grade and YA. And I think that his track series, starting with Ghost, can, can span. It can go from middle grade to YA, so I would absolutely mention that as well. The other two that I thought of are also really exciting, great books that I'm happy to have a chance to talk about. The first is Big Girl by Mecca Jamila Sullivan that just came out a few weeks ago. It is an adult title from Live Right, but it's about a a young girl growing up in Harlem. And it's wonderful. It's really about her struggle with her weight. So that part is not a comp, but it's a really good coming of age. And because it's new and fresh, I think. And also, it's just a really good book. So I'm happy to be able to give it a plug. And the other one, which I think is a really right on is Furia by Yamila Syed Mendez. That's about a coming of age of a girl who is a soccer player in Argentina. So that would have the sports angle covered. And that did really well. It was a YA Reese pick. And she just does really great YA work. So big girl and Furia. But I think You're right on the money already with Poet X and Jason Reynolds. Amazing. Thanks,
1: Emily. Okay, let's go to the second one.
8: Hi Bianca, I'm looking for comps for my novel which is a supernatural horror novel for adults and it's about a struggling new mother who after she realized that the baby in her daughter's crib isn't the one she gave birth to anymore, she has to fight dark entities in order to find back her baby while trying to appeal like a sane, capable mother to everyone around her. It has themes like Ashley Audrey's The Push and the pace and tone is like blake's crouch black matter it's internal but it has a fast pace it's psychological but not <laughs> literary a great comp actually would have been josh mallerman's bird box but it's two holes so i'm looking for recent comps and my current comps are the push meets netflix hunting of hail house but i'm looking for book comps that are recent thank you
12: Okay, again, Bianca, your listeners, they know, they know how to comp because The Push by Ashley Audrain, a great one. I absolutely mentioned that one. Dark Matter by Blake Crouch. I love him so much. I always think he's a good comp for any sort of very commercial, speculative fiction. He is just the best in the biz. This is not an area that I read a ton in, but Blake Crouch is an auto buy for me. So I think he's wonderful. And I'm actually going to mention him later in another recording that we have coming up. I would add Baby Teeth by Zoe Stage, S-T-A-G-E. That is sort of a bad seed horror novel about a mother who's just not sure what's going on with her child. It doesn't necessarily have the speculative angle, but it's got that sort of struggling motherhood horror feel with a baby. I think that's a really good one. I would also suggest The Changeling by Victor LaVal, which is a recent, you know, there are several changelings out there. This is a recent one from, it's within the last five or six years, and it's a man who's concerned that his, maybe his wife and his child have been replaced or switched or something terrible has happened. And that definitely has that supernatural horror angle he does really good work. He's written a bunch of other good things as well. And then finally, I would think I would look at The Need by Helen Phillips, maybe slightly more literary than this query. But again, it's really excellent speculative fiction verging on horror. And it is concerned deeply with motherhood and how mothers take care of themselves and how being the mother of a young child can feel particularly frightening. So that's a great one as well.
1: Wonderful. Some of those I've read, I agree about Lake Crutch. you know, the rest of the Push I'm a huge fan of. We've had her on the show as well. The others I'm now adding to my list because they sound really creepy and delicious. Especially going into the fall. Yes. Put yeah. that on your October
12: list.
1: We want some of those spooky vibes. Okay. Right. Next one. Hi,
12: my name is Catherine, and I'm seeking comps for my debut novel set in small town North Carolina in 1973 about a recalcitrant community advocate who launches a long shot campaign against a beloved veteran city councilman following years of neglect by city officials of her all-Black enclave amidst a fraught relationship with her mother, and sexism and apathy on the campaign trail, a newspaper reporter asked a seemingly innocuous question about the candidate's lineage that exposes a long-held family secret that threatens to derail her campaign and that upends lies forever. Any comps that you could provide would be greatly appreciated. Thank you. Okay, so I have a soft spot in my heart for anything that has to do with small town, North Carolina. I'm from small town, South Carolina, but I spend a lot of time in North Carolina, so I am excited for this one. I love the 1973 setting, and I immediately thought about In West Mills by Deshaun Charles Winslow. I loved this debut. It takes place also in small town, North Carolina. It's also about a black enclave that has perhaps been a little bit neglected and overlooked and a really singular female character who is the the heart of the story. I loved that book. I want him to continue to get lots of attention. I think he got a lot of love from writers and editors. I think he I think that he would that it would be a book that agents would respond to in a query because it was just so good and he has a new book coming out soon, either later this year or in early 2023. I also think that it would be worth looking at A Good Neighborhood by Therese Ann Fowler. So that does not have a 1973 setting. It is set in North Carolina and it is about sort of local politics and and neighborhood grievances and discussions with racial implications. And without knowing what the family secrets are that come to light in this book, I would suggest These Ghosts Are Family by Maisie Card, which is a book about the repercussions of family secrets and how we deal with those when they're uncovered and the wonderful Vanishing Half by Britt Bennett, because that spans the decade. So, it, you know, we see the 1960s and beyond. It might capture a little bit of that historical element. It is set largely in the South, not entirely. And of course, significant family secret at the heart of that book.
1: Wonderful, Emily. Thank you. And I'm giving a shout out to Catherine who came through to my Atlanta event and I got to have dinner with her and and a few drinks and just to chat with her. And it was just so, so lovely. And I know she was looking forward to hearing your comps there. Okay, let's move on to the next one. Hi, Bianca, Carly, and Cece.
3: I'm looking for some comp title recommendations. I'm working on an adult historical fiction novel that takes place in early 20th century central europe the story is about two sisters who are recently orphaned and they're each making her own way in this new city as they become uh, young adults and they're dealing with work issues they're dealing with sibling rivalry and and also dealing with their dark, traumatic past. There's queer themes, feminist themes, dark themes. And I'm having a hard time coming up with comps from the past
12: five years. So it would be great to have some. Thanks. Okay. So this one is a little bit of a trick because I feel like I could, I, if I had this caller on the line, I would have a lot of follow up questions. But what we got is super intriguing. And I definitely got the dark feel. I feel like we've got the tone of this book. I would suggest Lights All Night Long by Lydia Fitzpatrick, one of my favorite debuts in recent years. It is not set in the the early 20th century, but it is a European sibling story. So in Lights All Night Long, the characters are two Russian brothers, young Russian brothers. It is very dark, but it is so beautifully written. I would consider that one despite the difference in the time and setting, because I think it might grasp that sort of sibling relationship feel and the dark the darker themes. These the brothers in lights all night long are absolutely on their own and overcoming significant trauma. And then I might look too at The Shadowland by Elizabeth Kostova. So that's historical fiction that's set in Bulgaria. She is perhaps better known for The Historian. So I wouldn't necessarily suggest that one. But I would look at the Shadowland, which might have a little bit have that European feel that might capture the historical element. And together, I think those hopefully would give a good feel for the the dark historical fiction nature of this one. Oh, and you know what, I would also look at the YA author Ruta Sepetus, because she writes really great historical fiction, even though it's YA, I think people know her as a, a great historical fiction writer. So I would look at her work. And I would look at Pam Zhang's How Much of These Hills is Gold. That's set in the U.S., in the Western U.S., but it is also a sibling story. Siblings are orphaned. It has queer feminist themes. And I would throw that out there. That's just a really great one that might have some similarities, even though it's set in the U.S.
1: Wonderful, Emily. Thank you. Okay, next
12: one. Hello
4: Bianca, Cece, Carly and Mysterious Bookseller. My name is Belinda and I adore your podcast and appreciate all you do to help those of us in the query trenches. I'm preparing to query a YA romantic fantasy and would love some help as I look for comps. I'm planning to use Bridget Kamara's Defy the Night, which I think captures the angsty tone and court setting, but I'm really struggling to find a second comp. My manuscript features a girl with ink magic who's spying for a rival kingdom while trying not to fall again for the childhood friend-turned-prince who previously broke her heart. It has childhood friends to enemies to lovers' romance, court intrigue, art and word-based magic, and also features flashback letters written by the love interest. Keen to hear your suggestions. Thanks so much for your time.
12: Okay, so now we're on to our YA Romantic fantasy. And I love again that everybody's got their their comp right away. So we're we're only, you know, that's why there are probably less queries this time. Like Bianca, you've trained everybody so well. So I think Defy the Night sounds like a great one. I would look at the authors Kira Cass, Holly Black, who writes similar to the Bridget Kemmerer series. I would look at Danielle Clayton's The Bells. That's a really great one. And I think all of those will capture the fantasy, the sort of angsty longing and the the royal, the sort of courtship the court or, or at court part of this fantasy. So I think all those are good, good YA comps.
1: Amazing. Second, last one. Here we go.
3: Hi, Bianca and guest bookseller. I can't tell you how grateful I am for all that you do. Like every other listener, I'm sure. Also, Bianca, I just have to say I've been listening to The Witch is a Moonshine Manor on audiobook, and I'm completely obsessed. I vote for a sequel, just saying. And grilling aside, I'd love both of your help in coming up with comps for my adult contemporary novel. It's about a 30-year-old female professional sculptor who's unmoored by her father's sudden death. She discovers some devastating family secrets and betrayals that are also felony offenses, I think it leans toward the commercial side of Upmarket with a plot-driven approach to character-driven questions like what if you aren't who you think you are and how we limit ourselves when we try to find who we are. I've also tried to inject a bit of humor, kind of emulating the style of writers like Leon Moriarty. I hope this is enough for you to go on. Thank you in advance for your suggestions.
12: All right, well, this one's one of my favorites just because this caller shouted out the Witches of Moonshine Manor. So we love that. We love a fan and we love that book, of course. For this one, we've got our, our young woman who is unmoored by her father's death. This immediately reminded me of one of my favorite novels from this summer, The Catch by Allison Fairbrother. I feel like it has not yet gotten all the attention that it's going to because this is one that when people read it, They want to pass it along. They want to tell other people about it. In The Catch, our young woman is also unmoored by her father's death. And specifically, she is vexed by what he has chosen to leave to her in his will. So he dies suddenly. She does not receive the artifact that she thought that he would have left to her. And in figuring out sort of like why he has bequeathed this special baseball to other people, she sort of uncovers things about her father. It has a lot of humor in it. She is in her early twenties. It's it's just really excellent and and reads very upmarket. You know, it's not a it's not a downer, despite the grief angle. I also thought about Flying Solo by Linda Holmes and Linda Holmes' earlier book Evie Drake Starts Over. So in both of those, that feels like it might have the same the same tone as what this author is going for. Because of the plot driven angle that she mentions, you know, it's hard, I can't tell how much the the father's secrets and the possible felonies add to the plot if it's sort of suspenseful in that way. But if it is, I would look at Rosie Walsh's love of my life, which is sort of an upmarket, you know, suspense. you're trying to figure out like who was this person? what what have I missed? What don't I know about this person that I loved? And the last thing he told me, by Laura Dave, which, of course, was a smash hit and is going to be a movie soon with Jennifer Garner.
1: So I would look at all those. Amazing. And I love Rosie Walsh's book. We interviewed her on the podcast. So if that's something you're interested in for a comp, go back and make sure you listen to that episode. And thank you for the Witches of Moonshine Manor shout out. Yay. Yay. Again, now it's our last one drafting an adult sci-fi thriller about a woman who sees someone in her rearview mirror every
8: time she drives over a bridge to visit her husband in the hospital who's been in a coma after a questionable accident they live in a town that's like eureka but with a darker feel she has a newborn so there are elements of new motherhood she's juggling on her own it has the compulsive pacing and tone of laura dave's the last thing he told me because she's on the hunt for who the stranger in the rearview is what their presence could mean and what their connection could be with her husband's accident she's also questioning whether or not what she's seeing is real so there an element of unreliable narration. Additionally, it has some quirky humor banter elements with a nosy neighbor and a talking house who also part-times as her babysitter. At its core, it's a sci-fi thriller with a specular twist and quirky humor. It has a more commercial appeal with lyrical prose at times when the main character is performing her job duties as a surrealist designist. For comps, I was considering something like the compulsive pacing of The Last Thing He Told Me set in a dark Eureka town, but I would
3: love more comps so that I can find new books to read. Thank you!
12: Okay, so this was the perfect segue. I just get these in order, the order that Bianca sends them to me. But the last thing he told me, it pops up right here. So I had already jotted a note to myself for the, the previous one, but this one, it sounds great for this one as well. I said that there was another book that I was going to mention as a comp to Blake Crouch, and that is this. I think the speculative angle would lend itself well to looking at Blake Crouch's books, particularly his first two, Dark Matter and Recursion. And I'm so excited to get to mention one of my favorite books of the last three years, Kate Hope Day's book, If Then, which is... Sort of literary speculative fiction, just lightly speculative. And like in this one, the woman sees things in her rearview mirror. And if then, our characters start seeing these sort of ripples in their real lives. It's almost like they see, you know, a, a screen or something. They'll be in the room with their husband and then they'll see a flicker and it's someone different. I loved this book. It is, it's a lovely book. And it also has one of the best depictions of being a young mother that I've seen. So I think that 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 might really fit well. Along those lines, I also thought about Karen Thompson Walker's more recent book, The Dreamers. So again, that sort of commercial, but slightly speculative, both Kate Hope days and Karen Thompson Walker's books feel so real and so grounded in the here and now that I think that they weave in that speculative bit very well. And then I mentioned it already, but I think that because of the motherhood angle in this one, this person would also be good to look at the need by Helen
1: Phillips. Amazing, Emily. As per you've added to my to be read pile that is probably going to topple over and kill me in my sleep one day, but... But it's all good. Right. So for our listeners, uh, thank you for sending in your comp queries. Remember, the more information you can give us in terms of tone, in terms of everything, in terms of whether it's more literary or more commercial, this helps Emily really narrow it down for you. Thanks again for joining us, Emily. Thank you so much. I love to do it. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes.